It's a great pleasure to welcome you this evening uh, to this first event of our 2018 public program titled Technology is the Answer, but what was the question? Uh, now more than 50 years on, we have taken this provocative statement by Cedric Price as the title for this new series, in which we take a closer look at the impact of technological progress on architecture. In this series, we will interrogate the effect uh, of the increasing presence of technology is having on ways of producing, visualizing, and also conceptualizing architecture. Traditionally presented as an answer for, to human needs and limitations, technology is now also transforming the way architecture is produced and the ways in which we interact with it, fostering adaptation and change in both individual and collective behavior. From architecture, open source platforms, and the impact of augmented reality in the way we interact with uh, our space, to the actual implications of our reliance on technology uh, on the landscape. Tonight, our participants will address a range of questions about the impact of these digital technologies, not only on architecture, but also in society and cities. The event uh, will start with three brief presentations, uh, followed by a discussion moderated by Eddie Hicko, here with me, who is the architecture and design critic at the Financial Times and also the editor of a very, very good like, platform, new platform called Reading Design that I really recommend you to, to visit. This discussion will be followed also by some time for questions from you, the audience. Um, before introducing our speakers, I would like to apologize because we have some last minute changes in, in our panel. And uh, Indy Johar and Adam Greenfield we, uh, are not joining us today, but we have two wonderful additions that I will introduce in a minute. So the first speaker will be Alastair Parvin, who is a strategic designer, civic entrepreneur at Zero Zero and also co-founder of WikiHealth Foundation. And he will be talking about like, how open source platforms are like, improving new ways of sharing and producing uh, architecture. His presentation will be followed by Lara Lesmeth, who is architect and teacher at the Architectural Association and also co-director of Space Popular. Their work is uh, very related to new ways of approaching space through uh, augmented reality, uh, something that they are like, um, developing not only through exhibition projects like the one that they have recently at the, the store, um, store, store, flagship store, um, but also through their teaching at the Architectural Association with their unique tools for architecture. Um, Lara will be followed by uh, Kate Davis and Liam Yang, who with their nomadic design studio and known field develops expeditions around the world to research about the impact of technology uh, on uh, our contemporary lives in the landscape. Uh, also, we have a very uh, special guest who will be joining them for, uh, just for the discussion. See the architect and tutor at the RCA and co-founder of Mayo Studio, Anna Pujaner, who have been recently commissioned by the Royal Academy to develop the first project at the architecture studio uh, as part of the project Invisible Landscapes, which will open in May with our new building in Burlington Gardens. And now, with further ado, uh, please give a warm welcome to Eddie Hipko. Thanks so much, uh, Gonzalo. Um, it's a familiar quote, this, um, this Cedric Price quote, that technology is the answer, but what was the question? And it's, and it's uh, as acerbic today as it, as it must have been <clears throat> in 1979. Um, it, was, it was from a talk in 79, and um, the architect makes some very prescient uh, points. Um, but other times, also completely misunderstands the future. And I just wanted, before we kicked off, to um, quote a little bit of Cedric Price, just because that's a familiar uh, uh, piece, a familiar question, but where, what does he say after that? 
He's very good on computing. Here he is talking about his uh, proposed computer center. Because it is a violently competitive world, they, the employees, may well change their jobs many times in 10 years. And I think that technology must be drawn on to allow a building such as this to enable a response to people's appetites by the week, not by the year. The most important thing, he goes on to say, is that the individual user of the building, not the administrator or the manager of the building, can make such requests known and they will receive a response from the structure itself. Is that a premonition of smart architecture or is it the opposite? This idea about um, uh, technology giving agency to the individual has been uh, confirmed, but it's also been exploded recently. We're increasingly bound up in a kind of corporate web in which we are increasingly given, giving up everything we own, from the music to the pictures and photos and contacts to corporations. So I'm hoping we're going to be uh, discussing today the uh, the upsides and the downsides of uh, of the implications in um, in Cedric Price's question. Without hearing more from me, I can pass you straight over to Alistair, who's going to be sharper and funnier than uh, I am, I hope. Thank you very much. I had a confession, by the way. I'm a, a, a problematically huge fan of Cedric Price. Um, I think he, he coded a large chunk of my brain, and I never met him. Um, so uh, I'll get that out of the way as quickly as possible. Um, I, I'm not actually going to talk about open source architecture and, and WikiHouse. There'll be, you'll, you'll see some of the threads... Uh, of it in there. Um, maybe that's a conversation for another day. But um, in the spirit of this topic, I'd like to talk more about the question uh, than, than about the technology. And I'm also going to enjoy uh, not having lots of slides. Um, I'm just going to have one slide, uh, which is this one. Um, so on the morning after the, uh, what was it, 2015 election, the one where Ed Miliband uh, got kicked. Um, so the morning after that election, the, the Wales editor uh, for the BBC, tweeted these two images side by side. The image on the left is the remaining Labour seats in, in the UK at that time, and the image on the right um, are the coal fields, most of which are now defunct. And of course, the two look almost exactly the same. It was a really, really clever way of articulating the extent to which our political institutions, our political parties, and even our political ideas are literally obsolete. They were literally designed for a different industrial age, a different labor economy, um, a different world. And we no longer live in that world. We've been catapulted by a new industrial revolution, uh, whether we like it or not, into this um, other future. Um, so, and I think this is the first thing, Calling, referring to this stuff as technology is a bit of a misnomer, right? There's no such thing as a tech company. Name to me a company that doesn't use technology. Right. Um, the, uh, so we have to have to think about what exactly is happening. What's happening is that we are going through an industrial revolution. Um, it's a bit like society moving from not having paper to having paper, but with many, many more zeros on the end. Right. It's a profound, unprecedented thing, and all of us are going uh, through that leap. And the other thing about it is there's lots of baffling language around tech that is almost designed to make you feel stupid, like you don't know what's going on. So I'm going to try and reduce what I think is going on in the simplest possible terms. What do we mean by digital revolution, by digitization? The first economic impact of digitization is the driving down of what's called marginal costs to close to zero. So for those of you, some of you uh, will be familiar with it, for those who aren't, marginal cost is a, a wonkish economics term for the cost of producing another one of any 
given good? Once you've set up the factory and set up everything else, how much does it cost you to, cut, to, to, to produce the next one? In the case of buildings, almost exactly the same. Right? There are almost no efficiencies from one building to the next. Um, but in the case of Coke cans, almost nothing. Right? So what digitization does is it drives down those costs. That's why the cost of energy is being, uh, of solar energy, for example, has been falling and falling and falling. But it drives down the cost of, uh, and the web obviously did a, a huge thing. It wasn't just automation. The web made, for example, the, 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 cost of, uh, the marginal cost of producing a, a music record almost nothing. And that's why we got Napster and, and Spotify. So that's the first thing that's happening. And that's good, by the way. Because that part of that massive driving down of the cost of production is also this distribution of power, this democratization. Like we really need to be that to be the case. If we're going to support a global population of 9.5 billion people on planet Earth, we need to switch to from chemically intensive monoculture agriculture to uh, knowledge intensive agriculture using smart methods, right? So we, we need that driving down of costs. But of course, also it comes with dangers, which is automation, right? Is that most of us made our money in those big bureau bureaucracies doing the same thing over and over again. And so automation threatens our jobs. The, the second big uh, thing that digital uh, offers us is, is essentially, in a nutshell, it's data plus algorithm equals prediction. You can see the future often badly, but that's, what, that's basically the mechanism that's kind of going on. I'm being really simplistic here. Well, th again, that's really, really good. And it's really, really good for, uh, for architecture because it means for the first time we can talk about not objects, but their performance in the world. Uh, uh, again, as Cedric Price said, we should be less interested in the design of bridges and more interested in how to get to the other side. So suddenly, once we understand how our built environment actually performs, we can start talking more about education and less about schools more about health and less about hospitals, right? This is actually really good because architects have been protesting for a long time that making, trying to make the case for quality, but the first time we'll actually be able to genuinely prove that bigger windows makes for happier people and better outcomes, right? So actually, that's a really cool thing. And, and, and also, you know, we're working, the Wikias project and the platforms we're working on are looking at how we can automate design knowledge. Um, but of course, also, it comes with massive dangers in terms of the, the biases that can be written into these algorithms, the huge centralized power that can be created, um, uh, and, and massive in injustices on a massive scale, right? With, with these, because ethics are coded into these algorithms, and we have no idea what they are. Um, so there's, you know, okay, good and bad. So let's skip out the technology conversation. Let's all skip to a future that all of us can probably imagine in 10 years time, say, in which energy is abundant, cars drive themselves, you can produce a building, uh, the click of a switch and a 3D printer will just print it using hardly any, any you know, resources. Healthcare hardly costs a thing, right? Let's move ourselves into that future. On one level, it sounds great. Right? And, and of course, there have been people who have said, oh, it's fine, we're moving to luxury communism, we'll all just spend our time on the beach. Um, or we'll be, as Jeremy Rifkin said, we'll be instantly catapulted into this kind of um, lovely, kind of instant commons-based commons -based society. Well, the catch is that capital and power don't just go away. They don't just give up and say, oh, capitalism was nice, but we'll stop now. Right? Capitalism asks itself a really simple question, which is, in this future, what is left to own? 
And that's the really important thing. So the first phase of that was, let's own the platform that have these powerful network effects. So owning Facebook, owning Uber, etc. Now, Uber's not magic, right? All they did was they killed the bureaucracy of the back, back office of the taxi. They just automated that and used that very simple piece of code to just completely own the entire global taxi industry because those marginal savings were so extreme, right? So they said, fine, we'll own the platform. That's cool. The next thing that happened is... Um, the next thing of what they can own can be split into two, two domains, right? Roughly hard assets and soft assets. The hard assets we know about, right? Land. Owning land is, even if it's cost of zero, if they own the land, they can charge people uh, economic rent from a, a monopoly position, right? And of course, anybody who lives in London knows, is very intimately familiar with the cost to our lives of the fact that we have landlords extracting economic rent out of the land. And that has nothing to do with the actual land. When the price of land inflates, it's nothing to do with the buildings on it, it's to do with the pro it's public goods, right? It's the proximity to schools or roads or jobs or infrastructure. So um, that, that's why if you can ca capture a monopoly position on that land, then you can extract rent for nothing. The other one, which we don't talk about that much, is materials, but it will come. Right. IKEA are buying up large tracts of land in Eastern Europe. Apple's been buying a huge percentage of the amount of gold in the world. There is a finite amount of copper in the world. And if you can own it you will rent, and rent it back to people, you can take economic rent off it. So there will come a time when Apple will refuse to sell you an iPhone. Environmentalists will celebrate, but Democrats should scream. Um, uh, the other side, of course, are soft assets like IP. And of course, we're actually seeing a, right, an ever, a greater rise of open source IP. But what capitalism does, it moves into new domains of IP. Particularly, for example, we see GM. Uh, so a GM crops created by Monsanto, where they could take out patents. And we as a society and governments allow them to do this, where they then uh, lock people into, I'm sure you know this thing, right, into patented seeds. Um, and of course, we've barely begun to that with things like gene patents, where when, when the, the, the line between biology and technology begins to blur a little bit, um, that, that will become a weird space where someone could own some of the DNA in your body and own the rights to it. Um, uh, and then the other software, obviously, is personal, your personal data has become a commodity, because this is what technology does. It creates new asset domains and then captures them. Um, and so your personal data became a commodity. But now what's happening is, I mean, Google can now predict within something like 90% accuracy or something. I don't, I don't know the exact figure. But um, what you, like, uh, they can predict uh, whether your next relationship will work based on the data they already have about you. Right. So we're actually moving into a new domain where it's not just your private data that's becoming capital, but your behavior, the ability to influence, to make you happier or sadder, uh, you, and, your, and your mental health is becoming a commodity. No society's ever had to deal with that. Um, and then the final intangibles, if you like, that you could own are money itself, and so we can see huge speculation in things like Bitcoin at the moment, and uh, government owning government. One way of doing that is to troll them on Twitter and buy elections, but there's other more insidious ways of owning a government, which is the, the nature, owning the, the sort of democratic institutions themselves or replacing them. Um, so, uh, basically what I'm trying to say is that these are the domains which democratic society needs to dramatically be focusing our, en our, our energies on in the next few years, into making new, asking new questions about what it means to be a citizenship. What are our rights around data privacy? What should be, uh, how do we want to, to, what do we want to be a commodity when it comes to our health?
Um, how, do, how are we going to reform our land market? Because there's, you know, uh, otherwise we're just going to end up in this future where, with, ex well, it's a present, isn't it? Um, and let's face it, you know, the brutal truth is that arch the architecture industry um, is primarily working for that industry. Most of architecture's money comes from speculative real estate, which is that industry basically designed to capture the uh, ownership margin of that, of that land. That's who we've been working for. So, on one hand, this technological revolution offers us an amazing opportunity to fundamentally reinvent the way we work and to, and to realise what we as designers always felt was our purpose, which was to improve people's lives and the quality of their lives. But actually, it comes from two things. One is changing the way that we invest in technology, not just leaving it to Silicon Valley and, and, and saying, oh, it's dystopian, but actually thinking about how we can find other ways to invest in, in technological innovation, in, in open source or even public innovation, although my preference is for open source generally, um, that nobody owns. Um, but also then to kind of... To, to, to look at all these other domains, essentially to ensure that we realize the original promise that we originally believed in when it came to the technological rev revolution, which was demo democracy. In other words, this democratization of agency. And I mean that in the, in the literal sense, demos, people, kratos, power. And so when we're thinking about these things, that's our, that's our touchstone, which is, does it centralize, suck away power from the edge, or does it distribute power and push power um, to the edge? And I think, that's entirely doable, but we need to get serious. We can't be having this conversation about is technology good or is technology bad. The question we need to be having is how can we redesign our institutions and our norms for the world that we now find ourselves in? And that includes redesigning our professions. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm not going to say anything now. I'm just going to get Lara straight up, if you don't mind. So, hello. Um, I am Lara Lesmes, and uh, I'm the co-founder of the practice um, Space Popular that I run with uh, my partner, Frederick Helberg. And uh, we also run the studio Tools for Architecture at the Architecture Association, um, where we are dealing mostly uh, both in practice and in teaching with uh, addressing... Uh, virtual reality and uh, how will we approach that as architects. So we are mainly working with this um, idea of uh, developing architecture that functions across realities and uh, through a few, uh, a couple of projects I will be speaking about what do we mean by this and how do we do this. Um, we work in constructing virtual environments uh, that have their physical counterparts. Um, and uh, what we focus on is uh, how, in a world where you don't need to fulfill any of the usual purposes, um, how do you create a design criteria uh, that gives you a sense of purpose, right? Um, so we work, uh, we developed a project actually for a, a glass company, uh, which was an art installation, where we developed this uh, piece of virtual architecture. Uh, that then was translated into um, a physical reality through digital printing, but also had its virtual counterpart. Uh, so there was a sort of mixed reality experience. And uh, we use statements like this that actually don't come from us, uh, but come from um, uh, neuroscience and psychology in intersection with the built environment and therefore with architecture. And these become very important for us uh, as in like they speak about 
how the human mind becomes a site for architecture, right? Um, so this is the physical reality of uh, what we just saw before. Uh, basically, uh, all that three-dimensional information gets printed onto glass, and it becomes a virtual layer, um, very much like uh, frescoes uh, and so on have been done so far. So um, one of our main points uh, is that in virtual reality, the only purpose that architecture has is experience. And uh, we can consider this as the purpose of architecture overall, also for the, for the physical world. And in that way, we can develop design criteria that is applicable to both. So we're basically attempting to become architects that have one foot in the physical, one foot in the virtual, and that our methods and our knowledge would not become obsolete by operating in one or the other. Um, so, yeah, sorry, these were swapped, but like basically the ways in which we think about the virtual are also um, quite open and go quite far back into the past. So uh, we try to not focus only on the virtual as like what, the way we experience it to, with the means that we have today, um, but also the virtual as it has been for centuries and trying to think about what prompted us to do that. And yes, some of you might think in most of the times it's economy, right? I can have something painted versus having to build it. But actually there, there is perhaps much more than that. And especially in religious spaces, the virtual um, was constructed uh, partly through illusions that are sort of auto-completed by your mind. So that's something that interests us a lot. And um, this idea that a very thin layer is, can, can be what prompts our minds to construct architecture. To be clear, this is the backside of that installation that we were working with. So this is the same material, glass, in this case with no information whatsoever, right? Your eye is immediately going uh, in, into the pattern. Basically, the only content in there is the pattern. Uh, but actually, when we go into the other side, we are focusing on all this three-dimensional information that actually does not physically exist. It's just a representation through color and shadows of, um, of a three-dimensional space that is not there and is constructed in our heads. Um, so we also address, these are more of these statements that, again, don't come from us, but come from uh, scientific research in uh, neuroscience and psychology. Um, that are also very telling of like, what do the kind of environments we create, what do they do to us? And when we read things like this, they seem like clearly briefs or almost rules for how to design spaces. And many of them contradict the architecture most recently developed in the modern movement. Uh, arguments such as this one that we are actually neurologically wired to ignore anything that is in, uh, static and changing, non-threatening, and that it basically has no detail or not, no variation, right? Um, so uh, this architecture that is uh, sort of has one foot in the physical, one foot in the virtual, both for actually uh, developing criteria that is applicable to both, but also to develop an architecture that ultimately only exists um, in your mind. And we understand that mind is the ultimate, not the ultimate, but that for us, mind is the site of architecture. And therefore, site research becomes psychological research or becomes uh, research on neuroscience, right? Um, uh, we developed 
different projects that deal with that and are like projects that are looking at this um, not only for the experience of the individual, but also for the experience of the collective. Uh, projects that are based on how uh, we collectively construct narratives of the past and uh, our obsession with the keeping, but also how virtual architecture uh, intersects with, uh, with the physical and our need for the reference of the physical in order to be able to experience the virtual. So virtual experiences would mean nothing to us if we don't have the augmentation that we generate from our cognitive pool, right? Through our, uh, the references of uh, spaces we have already experiences, experienced. Um, so we have this idea that we, I mean, uh, there is the fact that we live simultaneously uh, inside our own bodies with other people and in the worlds inside our heads. And uh, if you consider these three levels of us, like um, three levels in which design can address the experiencing body, then a new criteria begins to emerge for the design of architecture. Um, we also look at other projects, uh, such as this one, in, in which um, we tackle even more directly the idea of the referential. Uh, the Cloud of Resilience is a project in which we wanted to, uh, we developed a, a system um, for a, a database for global mortality rates. So basically each of these points uh, is documenting the death of a person and uh, they become geolocated and also mapped in time as layers. Uh, this becomes data, obviously. You can start tracking when there has been uh, pandemics or where there is a war or proven, I mean, uh, given that you are getting all that data uh, correct and to deal with. Um, but then this project also deals with the individual and what is inside each of these nodes. So this point, that is your, basically your node of, of remembrance, as uh, we were calling it, would be an infinitely precise node uh, mapping the location of, of the deceased, in which um, a world would be constructed based on all the memories or basically all the data that you have left behind and anything that people that you know or people that you maybe allowed access to this uh, would want to contribute to. Of course, I can see that this topic angles of this, uh, but we wanted to see how far we could go with this idea of where do we exist um, beyond life when now we have created the virtual world that used to be heaven. It, it used to be imagined, right? And uh, we were uh, experimenting with these ideas of like, what would we be collecting? and uh, how would this be represented? Funnily enough, this, this project is actually quite a few years old. And also, what would ceremonies be uh, in spaces such as this? How does people visit it, and how does people get together um, in order to mourn and commemorate the death? So basically, what will be identity, uh, collective behavior, uh, and the representation of, of ourselves um, in virtual environments? So basically the questions that I wanted to bring uh, into the discussion, and since I've joined in quite late, I thought I would make them clear, <laughs> is uh, the two questions that we are trying to answer it most directly now in our practice and uh, again through, through teaching, which is what is the criteria for design 
if mind is the sight and experience is the purpose. Uh, and the second one uh, is the one that we are about to start working with, uh, which is uh, what is value, effort, and economy in virtual reality. And uh, yeah, with that, I would like to conclude. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Lara. That's excellent. Um, uh, we've had two, I think, relatively optimistic and positive presentations. I think we're uh, looking to Liam and, and Kate to give us a darker, <laughs> the darker side. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so Kate and I run um, a nomadic uh, design and research studio called Unknown Fields um, that's uh, based also out of the Architectural Association here in London. And what we do in Unknown Fields is venture out on expeditions into the shadows cast by our technologies. And in doing so, we try and uncover the alternative worlds, the alien landscapes, the industrial ecologies, the precarious wildernesses that are set in motion by the powerful push and pull of our desires that surround these technological systems. We tell tales from the dark side of technology we create alternative portraits of these technology using drone footage and hidden camera investigations, interviews and speculative narratives, making toxic objects, reimagined landscapes and distributed matter from distant sites. Our gadgets are not just discrete, sexy objects that slide into our pockets, but rather they're embedded in global systems that form a vast network of elusive tendrils twisting thread-like over everything around us, crisscrossing the planet, connecting the mundane to the extraordinary. So tonight we're gonna to tell a story of our electronic gadgets and travel with them from the point of consumption all the way to the holes in the ground from which they begin their lives. Uh, and we're gonna tell one story um, accompanied by the, the visuals that are hopefully up on the screen, yes they are. So all the footage that you're going to see has been captured um, from the Unknown Fields expeditions um, from around the world along this technological supply chain. Because we're interested in this idea that our material things set in motion a vast planetary scale infrastructure. And they carve holes like canyons, they move mountains, and they remake our world from the scale of the pixel to the scale of the planet. Our cities and our technologies cast shadows that stretch far and wide. So in a world of bytes and bitcoins, cyberspace and clouds, 90% of the world's cargo still tra travels by sea. It's dragged across the planet in heaving steel megaships, gizzards full with glistening gadgets and gizmos from distant lands. Our cities are produced across a notional factory floor that spans from the Apple Store all the way to the resource fields in the Far East. Unknown Fields is a nomadic design studio that ventures out on expeditions along these supply chains and cargo routes to make films and objects that visualize the dispersed choreographies and the atomized geographies that the world's desires bring into being. 
Our journey through East Asia marked a cross-section of these supply chains. From source to sea, we followed the routes of this and that, of bits and bobs and thingamajigs. So it's been just over 45 years since the Apollo moon landings, and some would have it that we've failed to build big anymore. But if you stand on the bridge of a giant container ship docked in a megaport in Korea, it's clear that that's just not entirely true. So 5,000 ships make up the global container fleet, and 3.6 million containers are in motion worldwide, just to give you a scale. So to get a sense of the, the nature of the, the scenes behind our technologies, we traveled across the surfaces of the planet's oceans. For centuries, a space of mystery and myth, expanse and desolation that has now been rationalized. So once an enigmatic or inspiring place, the sea in this context has become a zone of efficiency, little more than another channel for the automated supply chain network. And on this route, we meet the captain of the ship we're traveling on, who tells us that years ago, the sea used to be filled with a kind of phosphorescent algae that would glow when the waters were disturbed. We would leave this luminous green trail behind in the water as the motors churned up the algae. Toilets are flushed with seawater, and you could turn the lights off and you, when you flush the loo, and the whole room would glow. So nobody on the ship now knows what sits inside the containers it carries. It's a mega industry, and their bodies are just repurposed as robots in the giant machine that brings our electronics and goods all the way home. So this ship's called the New Dream. It's almost finished. They use GPS-guided cranes to move the large sections of the ships in the assembly process, and then weld the sections together by hand. These are some of the largest handcrafted objects in human history. So we understand who we are through the trail of these objects that we leave behind. And before our technologies set sail for our stores, they're bought, sold, and traded in the vast halls of this place, the Yiwu International Trade City, a wholesale market the size of a city. So this wholesale city consists of 80,000 shops, all identically sized 2.5 meter by 2.5 meter cubes that contain 10 million products that are stretched across 10 square kilometers. We try and buy something from the market, but he says, sorry, we can't do it. My minimum order is 100,000. For our next stop on the supply chain, we, we head to Shenzhen, a place that makes 90% of the world's electronics. And in this landscape, we can see these are the human machines of the production line that are all choreographed by efficiency algorithms. And their bodies are matched in speed to the conveyor belt that turns in front of them. In a way, these are the real robots of our cities of technology. So as we follow the technology, we then arrive at a village organized around metals and hardware components. The inhabitants of Guryu collect e-waste in their houses, surrounding their living, sleeping and eating spaces, mining their domestic landscapes for lead, gallium, tin, nickel and copper. And next to the pot of noodles simmers the acid bath dissolving circuit wafers, 
and separating metals and flavoring soup. And as we keep on traveling along the supply chain, finally, we arrive at the shores of a 10 square kilometer mine tailings lake. And this lake is filled with a cocktail of acids, heavy metals, carcinogens, and radioactive material that's roughly three times background radiation. And in this context, China produces over 95% of the, the world's rare earth, and two thirds of that is here in this place called Baoto. So this is some of the world's first footage from the toxic waste that sits beside the world's largest rare earth mineral refinery. And in this context, we take a selfie with our phones and we see our reflection in its mirrored screen because the material to polish its glass and to run its software produces this very lake and collapse together in this single luminous surface, we see ourselves and this black, black earth. And we brand our technologies with terms like cloud, air, and featherweight. But in reality, they're violently wrenched from this earth. And as our personal electronics tend towards the invisible, they conjure in their shadows and an un undeniably visible black mountain, a one kilometer deep pit and a 10 square kilometer radioactive tailings lake. All landscapes that are a counterweight to the apparent immateriality of computing, communications, and electric energy. So from this black sludge, um, we made a project called Rare Earthenware, which is a set of vases made from the amount of waste created in the production of free objects. An iPhone, a MacBook, and a Tesla electric battery cell. Uh, it's a new material aesthetic for technologies born of the earth. So we followed the unmaking of these objects of technology, reversing their journeys from container ships to ports, through wholesalers and factory floors, and all the way back to the banks of a barely liquid radioactive lake in Inner Mongolia that's continually pumped with tailings from the rare earth refining process. And the unmaking of our technologies is the making of these vases carefully crafted from their toxic byproducts. In silhouette, they, echo, they echo highly valuable Ming Dynasty porcelain vases. And Ming vases are particularly iconic objects of high value, as well as being artifacts of international trade. A one-family global superpower, the Ming Dynasty presided over an international network of connections, trade, and diplomacy. So these three rare earthenware vessels are in a way the physical embodiment of our contemporary global supply chain network that displaces earth and weaves matter across the planet. And they represent the undesirable consequences of all our material desires. And they remind us of the hidden value systems that drive the production of technology. And perhaps by mapping these systems, they also suggest an alternative creation story for how these objects could be brought into being if they weren't engineered around cheap labor and material availability. Because in the end, our cities, our lives, our technologies cast shadows that stretch across the planet 
far and wide. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much. Super. Well, thank you so much for those uh, presentations, all succinct and uh, and fascinating, from the uh, the kind of the super. The super jolly aesthetics to the uh, the black <laughs> the black lakes of uh, of, uh, of a kind of dystopian future. You you so raised yeah that's right. And I'd like to introduce um, Anna on the end here as well, who's our respondent. Um, you raised the issue towards the end of your film there that we tend, I think, to think of the digital as a kind of dematerialization of culture. And, and you clearly show that it's, it's quite the opposite, that it has, it has a very material shadow. Um, but the question I want to ask is about the physicality of the digital and how, um, how it might change, how technology might change the form, the architecture that, that, that we live in. So we've all, I think we've, um, Larry, you came closest to, to addressing that. Alistair, I know you're actually day-to-day -day involved in that. But I'd like to start maybe with, um, uh, to, to ask you about whether, what, what your opinions are on how we might, how the, the cities that we live in might react to uh, change, to kind of huge changes in digital culture that we're about to launch ourselves into. Well, it's quite curious because I was gonna actually raise that question. I, um, I was really, I, I, I actually appreciate a lot this last uh, presentation because somehow we were talking about physicality in these invisible landscapes. So therefore, I, um, even if we're talking about the digital, there's a direct, really strong uh, effect on uh, the physical. And, uh, and uh, so uh, I think that we should all the time talk about those topics in order not to lose control of where we are and be critical what uh, we are uh, talking. Um, at the beginning of the presentations, there were a lot of issues in relation that of, with um, the physical reality, even if um, he was not directly touching it, right? Uh, for instance, um, the, the, the concept of ownership, right? And ownership, it's related totally with uh, the physical, as well as the, cost, as the concept of cost. So we should ask uh, when we talk about uh, a more equal, um, a cost, uh, a, a more equal uh, power, you now distribution of power, we should ask ourselves what uh, does it mean? Mm -hmm. Who, uh, who's taking that power? When we talk about uh, uh, lowering the productions of cost, uh, for who? And uh, which uh, physical impact uh, have that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, process and uh, I'm, I'm saying this because what I'm missing and maybe we can, what I would like to discuss tonight is that actually uh, with uh, Liam and Kate presentation we have seen the physicality uh, relation in intercontinental territories. Meanwhile we should start talking as well uh, as a closer reality uh, in order to uh, I be more engaged with uh, the impacts of uh, this uh, digital uh, world that we're living in. And, uh, and I'm saying this because 
there's the risk about talking how we, I mean, and I'm, I'm totally into that. Huh? I bought an iPhone and I tried to buy a fair phone and not to have this uh, international <laughs> impact and I couldn't. So even if we are aware of it and we try to do it and we try to fight that back, it's so difficult that at the end we end up buying, you know, an iPhone. So we are aware of, of these international impacts, ecological, economical, and at the end social, but we are not that aware about a closer uh, impact on our closer reality. And I'm talking about London, and I'm talking about our homes, and I'm talking about our, you know, uh, something that we can physically touch. Which would, what would you think? Which would be for you a closer impact? <coughs> Why, why, don't, why don't we pass it over to Alistair? Because you're, I suppose, in a way, the, with, with the WikiHouse, you're the closest, you, you began the thing, and you're the, you're the closest to the, the, the very direct impacts on a built culture uh, coming out of this, and then we'll pass it around. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a nice John Luke Goddard quote about, it doesn't matter whether you choose ethics or aesthetics, you'll always find the other one waiting for you at the end of the corridor. Uh, and I think it's a bit the same with this conversation. You get into a kind of Carte Cartesian dualism problem. Um, yeah, like and what we on one level you're actually talking about is hypocrisy, right? Is that we like we've bought into this myth of, of non-physical, and of course it always has a physical implication. Um, uh, the, the, another quote, I, I like quotes, you've probably noticed. Um, <laughs> another quote which I'm always quoting is Bob Dylan quote, which is, we don't do what we believe, we do what's convenient and then repent later. Um, and, and although that's sad and not entirely true, uh, it's a bit true, uh, which goes to the thing about our phones. So uh, the answer is actually, of course, we have to not, we have to question some of these kind of myths, but actually then look behind and go, well, how do we start reinventing the systems behind? I mean, the, the working vision, uh, which we call the fourth industrial revolution, um, is the idea that actually we can move from, uh, uh, again, to use another quote, one of the quotes we used at the beginning of the WikiHouse project was, um, it's easier to ship recipes than cakes and biscuits, which I think uh, is John Maynard Keynes, but I've never met Robert Skidelsky to confirm this. Um, and so what we realized, uh, our kind of moment where that kind of got us going with that project was this realization that where we traditionally see a factory as a thing on the other side of the world, uh, and we kind of go and extract a bunch of things, et cetera, we suddenly realized that the falling cost of digital fabrication machines that we could set up smaller and smaller, cheaper and cheaper micro factories more and more locally. Uh, and so you could distribute the means of production um, and you could do this distributive fabrication model where you could send data, and the MIT has the center of bits and atoms, so they think of it in that terms, those terms. Uh, you could send data to a local factory, um, uh, uh, and therefore you could create a, a circular economy as much as possible because the material never actually needs to leave your town, right? You can actually just keep making and unmaking and remaking w with energy. So that vision of a circular economy, if you like, a circular, a circular distributed fabrication economy is there, but our job is, okay, how do we actually go and make that a reality? And it means, it turns out that in order to do this, we need to start getting under the bonnet with some really boring problems, like uh, liability and tracking and product certification. Um, the part that we're currently working on is essentially how we can use the World Wide Web for automation, because effectively it means we need to write a coding language for space so that we can track objects through their life, through the whole life of a building. 
uh, and make sure that then the building can be disassembled and every single part can be tracked, checked and reused or fully biodegraded. So um, the truth is there's just a, a lot of work that we've got to get on with, but it's, you know, it's possible if we set ourselves to it and don't allow ourselves to be distracted by these rather naff Silicon Valley tech visions. Of mm -hmm. What is the... I slightly struggle, like like with all these tech things. You, you mentioned the um, uh, the rentier culture of, of, of tech culture, and I slightly struggle to see where architects fit in to this future. Mm. Um, what do you think? You're the, you're the kind of you, you presented the architectural vision. So I'm afraid yours is the responsibility. Doesn't fit yeah, in the yeah, panel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe fits in the right. Uh, yeah, I find it interesting to be part of this because uh, actually uh, we don't particularly work with the digital, we're only working with the digital as the means towards the mm -hmm. virtual. Mm -hmm. um, and the virtual is in like the possibility of building with the mind or building for the mind, which is actually nothing, not necessarily new, but it's just we have new means of getting there, right? I mean, before it was narratives and told tales, and then we figured out very good, uh, very advanced representation methods. Uh, and so on. So, uh, the, to me, the question of like how do architects fit into all this, or, or at least the way in which we are addressing it is perhaps what I was just talking about, which is um, how do we make our skills relevant, and therefore what are really our skills? Mm -hmm. Are we really skilled at uh, managing the whole process, understanding where resources come from, tracking and da da, -da so on, um, or what we might be skilled at is constructing space? Um, there is, uh, and young architects like myself uh, feel, mostly feel like they graduate and they have no, no work to do, mm. <laughs> at least in the past mm. few years, and mm. it might be about to change. Um, but actually, there is a huge portal that has opened <laughs> that is right there where, where there is an incredible amount of, an, an incredible need and urge for content, right? Mm -hmm. Which will be virtual reality. That has been completely taken over um, by game design. Uh, and it's something that uh, architects don't really tackle. And it seems like uh, the skills that architects used to have further in the past could be incredibly relevant, and that in conjunction with other disciplines, um, such as psychology and neuroscience, could lead to the creation of new spaces. And then maybe to go back into addressing Anna's question of like, how does the digital, or if you would allow me, the virtual um, affect immediately the world around us? I would like to flip your question, and that there is no possibility for a virtual architecture without a physical reference. And that um, virtual, the most powerful virtual experiences are always those that are highly referential and have very slight variations, very slight twists in introducing something new. And then you fully understand, because they are pulling from your dictionary, right? Your, your pool of of reference, and that's what I find really interesting, that perhaps um, the, we can see the evolution of architecture in, in the virtual in parallel to the evolution of architecture as a discipline based on, the, on nature, right? We had nature as a reference and we started to develop architecture. So uh, looking at that as a reference of like, how did that happen, gives us hints of like, what could happen? And how will we move into creating new worlds um, based on the world around us. What are going to be those twists? What are going to be those fundamental changes to the architectural experience? I mean, that's 
basically what the questions that we're dealing mm. with. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, please. Add to that. I mean, I think it's interesting to think about sites of operation for architects and designers. Um, and just relating to your question about, or your comment about the world immediately around us, I think that's something that needs to be blown open a little bit because actually the world immediately around us is also the world in my pocket, in my phone. I'm in a kind of multi-dimensional territory just without even thinking about it. I have friends in, in the States. I'm in multiple time zones at once. I'm thinking about them being in their time zone, I'm in mine. Um, I'm in different spaces at once. I'm at once on the tube and I'm somewhere else. And I think that we have to think differently about the world around us as a space that doesn't have these fences, actually. Mm -hmm. And that is on a kind of multi-territorial um, level, a multi-scalar level, a set of networked relationships that we have to operate within at different at different levels. So that I mean that brings me to kind of th this contested territory, which is both a territory that the architect and the designer should operate in, which is the kind of the cultural narrative, the 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 territory of consciousness or of um, our dreams, our, our fears, our needs, our wants, our desires. Right. This is also the territory that um, capitalism wants to get into. Right. Mm -hmm. the, Capitalism would love to be inside our dreams and it's trying, you know, it's probably the last uncharted territory, maybe not. Um, and so it's that, that's the space. It's actually a shift in the narrative and that narrative embodies our cultural values. So what we decide to put value on and what sets up the relationships we have with everything we own. And I think what we're trying to do is add a kind of secondary set of values, add baggage, add weight, add, add materiality to some of those values which are supposedly in the kind of, mm. in the dream of the cloud. Um, but don't you think also that it seems like we're moving on and on towards, uh, let's say, uh, in a way getting rid of our material possessions? Uh, and it seems like our most caressed possession is identity, right? And that perhaps we, uh, we, we, we discuss actually this idea of the possessionless society, which always opens for a very interesting ideas of what an architecture could be in a possessionless society, right? But it also brings the, yeah, the addressing the issue of, of identity and perhaps its connections to privacy and maybe like that being the, the last thing we will own in, in the ways in which we understand ownership um, as of now. But I think those, you know, those mediating technologies have to be somewhere. I don't think we ever, we don't take them away, we just move them somewhere else. Yeah, I think there's this, there's this mythology of um, of the world evaporating and melting into air, right? Like, yeah, like we, we, yeah, we can talk about the construction of identity as being as like a kind of architecture, but you know, what shapes our identity might be our social media profile in that possessionless world. That social media profile lives in a building in Pineville, Oregon, powered by a giant power station run off a river that's being dammed, right? Like, I think it's... Um, we need to stop thinking about the idea that the virtual and the digital exists in any way separate from the physical. These things are totally collapsed together in this weird 
messy reality, right? Like technology is like, technology in the city is like the city after the rain, you know? It's just this veneer over everything that is almost kind of transparent, but utterly changes the experience of that landscape, right? Um, and in that sense, you know, the agency of the architect is one that, that certainly, as Lara described, should be occupying and, and shifting between these different forms of sites, some sites that have no footprint, um, some sites that, you know, embedded in a hole in the ground in China, um, or others that are just down the road, and they're all connected in really intricate and intimate ways, right? There's no such thing as a single site anymore. It's just this um, multiple set of network conditions, um, which suggests that the agency of the architect, or at least the designer, is a really interesting one. Because like Kate and I run this thought experiment that if we saw the design of, of the, the iPhone that Anna pulled out of her pocket as being akin to the design of a set of landscapes, which is what it is, then what does that mean for the product designer sitting in Apple, um, in Cupertino? You know, how, how, does he, uh, how does he or she make that choice about the material finish of that iPhone 11 or whatever it is that's coming out that's not based on how it sits in Beyonce's hand in a cool commercial or how it effortlessly slides into our pocket? but how it might set in motion a particular kind of landscape condition across the other side of the world, right? And thinking about um, design and designing for a site in that kind of networked way, I think, is um, potentially really empowering mm -hmm. um, for the agency of the architect. It was quite provoking to ask uh, the role of architecture in all this. Mm -hmm. So I want to address that. And also because I, I, I would like also to point out um, the idea of imaginaries, that I think that uh, that's uh, something that we have to be at the same time critical and aware of. And uh, when, uh, when the, 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 the Industrial Revolution uh, had an impact on uh, homes and therefore on uh, how cities were defined, um, it was basically because socially it was um, understood that the new cooking appliances, so the new electri uh, electric appliances and similar uh, devices, allow us to, to work less at home um, and therefore free us from home labor. And uh, at the end, nowadays, we all know that that, was actually, that had... had direct impact on how our cities were defined and all these uh, new policies were basically defined in order to f uh, push a typology that it was based on an individual home uh, that has defined our most of our capital cities based on this sprawl so the ideal of a home as a you know family home that it's filled with this elect new electric uh, home devices that basically what they were actually pushing is uh, a type of industry in uh, certain types of, in certain countries. So when we raise these new imaginaries about uh, being us being more connected with knowledge, for instance, or us being more free to, you know, choose. Now freedom is super a target, no? Us being more movable or less uh, objectual in the sense that we have less possessions or so on. I'm, I'm all the time trying to, to raise the questions of what 
is behind that in physical terms? How would be the city that would come out of this, and how would be the homes that are come out of that would come out of this? And if there's anything as it happened at that time behind all these uh, new uh, imaginaries that being defined. Alistair, maybe I'll, maybe I'll give, give you that because that's that's in a way back to this question of what are the what are the physical impacts? So what is if if um, what Anna was describing the 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 kind of culture of uh, planned obsolescence mm -hmm. and of promoting a kind of white goods culture yeah. uh, as a kind of turbocharged capitalism was the was the 20th century model. What is the 21st 22nd century model? Uh, well, for a lot of people in the developing world, it's the 20th century model. Um, yeah. the, 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 there's, a, there's an uncomfortable side of this because we like to take cool positions about like the 1950s, don't we? But actually, uh, it's an uncomfortable truth that Hans Rosling rather brilliantly pointed out that uh, the invention of the washing machine arguably did more for women's rights than any women's rights movement, right? Which is really difficult to, to kind of grasp, right? Uh, and, and, but to kind of realize that these things did they have these invisible effects, mm -hmm. right? And then, of course, they have the, ne the, the next effect, and they have this kind of weird, it created th th this atomized suburban world. Um, and so, like, I, I ultimately, I think you, you flip it and you go around the other way and around. So the, the challenge that we have is that we seem to be currently split into a load of people who sort of, Either they want us to kind of throw out all material possessions, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, you'll notice, by the way, that uh, you know the, big, the world's biggest concentration of vegetarian restaurants per square mile is in Portland, Oregon, right? a very, very wealthy bit of the world's biggest meat-consuming country. Right? So you've got to be careful of M&S environmentalism, basically, uh, which is a sort of very privileged position of environmentalism, saying, oh, you didn't need holidays or meat, because who gets to decide what improves people's rights and quality of life versus what's an unnecessary luxury? Who gets to decide? Right? So th that kind of austerity environmentalism argument, I think, is extremely problematic. So in, in, instead, you're left with the other argument, which is then how do you engineer a future which is actually desirable and realistic for, for everyone to, to work in? And I think that, that's a really open question. I'm also, whilst very aware of, of the power and explosive idea of intangibles, right? The fact that, as you say, you've now, architects now have a world of infinite real estate to build on, right? <laughs> um, uh, and endless budgets. <laughs> um, the, the, but... Equally, uh, yeah, no, I think we, we have to kind of set ourselves to that challenge of how do you realistically go about engineering a kind of decent mm -hmm. kind of thing for solving the tangible problems, right? Um, but the, 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 um, the corollary to that is, is the explosion of, the, of, of Cedric Price's question, isn't it? That, that you know, we, it takes us from talking about architecture mm -hmm. to talking about society. Well, architecture was never about architecture. I mean, architecture is, I mean, I always say the best thing about architecture is, is it's, it's completely made up and you can be whatever you want it to be. And the worst thing about architecture is it's completely made up and you can be whatever you want it to be. Um, like, arch architecture, we think it's the oldest profession. It's not. Architecture as a profession emerged, emerged from an artistic discipline sometime around the 17th century, generally speaking. It's pretty much always been the, the, the job of working for the 1%. It's almost never been the job of work. You know, Nicholas, wasn't so long ago, Nicholas Pevson was telling us that a cathedral was architecture and a bike shed was just a building well it turns out bike sheds are quite important and maybe we should start designing them um <laughs> and uh, you know so mm, thanks nicholas um so <laughs> that like 
yeah, I, I kind of don't, I don't buy that. And, I, and I'll return to Cedric Price again. I mean, he, he uh, always said the last argument for architecture is preventative mental health. <laughs> right? And, and fundamentally, we should be absolutely not at all interested in buildings, but entirely interested in their effects. Now, that's a big, big deal. Because if you actually take that seriously, we, it's a really exciting time to be alive as designers because we have an opportunity for the first time not just to dream that but to actively pursue it. So my colleague, Indy Johar, who's going to be speaking this evening, um, he's actually working on a really interesting project to explore the idea of performance-based contracts for architects where instead of being paid a percentage of the build cost, you'd be, pay, you'd be paid on essentially um, a, a yield of the savings for the end outcome. Uh, this is a big, big deal because our entire construction economy is based on uh, bad contracting methods, right, that, that isolate risk uh, and therefore deliberately drive down quality, uh, and, and speculators, right? We rely on these big centralized speculators. So if we can start to cut out those middle layers of, because by designing out risk, et cetera, et cetera, which is what really we're trying to do with this digital technology, for the first time we can start making connections and, and contracts, legal contracts, between outcomes and designers. And for the first time, we as an architecture profession will have an opportunity to actually work on the thing we always wanted to work on, which is making stuff better and actually making that our jobs. And that I find pretty cool. The downside of that, I'm afraid, is I did try that when I used to work as an architect. I tried that with a developer once. We had a, we had a contract that I would get a percentage of the uplift in value that the, that the new yeah. scheme had given. Yeah. And when he realised how much he'd, he'd have to pay me, he decided to go bankrupt right. rather than pay me. So that's the, that's the downside. Contract's fine, but once the guy's bankrupt, yeah. I, we've, we've talked plenty in a way. It would be nice now to, to hear a little from you. Uh, questions, probably rather than statements, but maybe a few pithy ones if you wanted. Pass the mic, Randy. Yeah, we've got a, uh, a hand over there, just on the aisle. Blimey, I wasn't expecting to be first. Um, so uh, I spend most of my life thinking about user-centred design in the kind of digital space. Uh, so I suppose my question really is, given the amount of money which um, those digital companies have um, and access to architects of world-renowned, why are our working environments so terrible? Why is the physical space which we spend our lives in working in, doesn't matter whether it's old or new or conversion or whatever, they are almost entirely truly, truly terrible and almost completely the counterpart, you know, the, the, the opposite, the mirror universe version of user-centered design full of anti-patterns and whatever the anti-pattern for an affordance is. Why is that? Who fancies answering that? Anyone? There you go. <laughs> I think, I mean, it, and it, it touches on something that um, Alistair's been saying. I think it comes back to value system. It comes back to the metric by which the space that you occupy is being measured for success. And it's not about you, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, that's, I suppose, what we're interested in with our work is... It, we need to infect that metric. The, we need to infect the value system so that it reflects something that re reflects the way we want the world to be. Because at the moment, it really doesn't on all kinds of levels, um, down to whether that space is a nice place for you to work. That's not really in the lev in the, the the list of important things in that um, in that building um, process. It's not. It's not the top, right? Um, and I think that 
where I find hope in technology is its ability to um, to deal with the complexity involved in getting that metric right. The complexity involved in evaluating a whole series of um, factors and finding a very nuanced system um, to replace a very blunt system that we have at the moment, which ends up giving us ugly and blunt um, results. <coughs> I, I, I suppose I touched a little on that at the beginning in the quote from Cedric Bryce, where he believed that you cut out the management so that the user should be able to communicate directly with the building uh, to change it, you know, which is a, quite a way ahead of where we are now, I think. But um, he also touched on the impossibility of knowing what the future would hold. And I think that's, that's partly the problem, is that we're always in a, in a vision of working 20 years ago. Um, so maybe that's the answer, is that we just, we, we're too deterministic. Okay. I, I personally find it a different issue, I mean, beyond the whole practicality aspects uh, and metrics of how we evaluate and get our spaces built. Um, I think it's just because we don't know. Like, uh, as architects, we don't get trained and we don't have enough knowledge mm -hmm. of the way the built environment impacts us at a psychological level, and I, don't, I think I seem to keep going back to these topics, but I find them of extreme importance, even though, of course, one has to be aware of, uh, of all the issues that come with constructing something, uh, whether it is real or uh, physical or ritual. But um, I just think that uh, there, are, there is knowledge that needs to be part of an architect's training that at the moment is not, and that's why we end up with spaces like that. And as you said, the, uh, as you said, the uh, the site is the mind, and in your mind, you can have the most beautiful office in the world. Well, no, <laughs> not in that <laughs> sense. <laughs> any, uh, I think that's asking a lot. <laughs> any other, uh, any other uh, question? Uh, your conversation reminded me of a part of a book I was reading yesterday, actually, by Anthony Townsend called Smart Cities, and it was a quite a basic fact that he put forward. Um, he was saying that at some point not too long ago, the number of connected uh, internet of things, the number of connected devices surpassed the population of the world. And what does, what would that, okay, my question's coming to me. <laughs> um, what would that mean in terms of um, designing an object or an architecture when it's connected infinitely and you can't really foresee how it's connected, what it's connected to, and what's that thread? as a designer? It was interesting that in this talk we didn't really touch on the Internet of Things or the Smart City, which were the two things that I expected originally that the talk would mostly be about. And I'm, I'm so glad because I'm slightly allergic to both of those <laughs> ideas. So, uh, but I'm glad you brought it up so at least we can say we've, we've covered it. What do you think? Tell us why you're allergic to it. Well, I think that yeah, I had a conversation with Bruce Sterling over the phone <laughs> recently, and he, you know, he said that, uh, you know, what is the end? What is the end of this? China? He said, "My, my God, China is hacking my fridge." You know, Chinese intelligence is, 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 you know, attacking my house. And I think there is this, there is this idea that when, when everything becomes interconnected, you lose agency completely, uh, which seems to me the kind of nightmare endpoint. But I may, be, I may be just being too, too black mirror about the whole thing. What do you think? <laughs> no, I completely agree. And, and Bruce, I, I mean, I would just defer to Bruce Sterling on his, you know, he's got a brilliant, witty way of just completely dis dismantling the ridiculous idea of smart cities. When you hear the word, I mean, we've, we've occasionally had to do this to try and describe what we're, this kind of operate, digital operating system for design, and we've, we've occasionally brought into calling it a smart uh, 
building platform and we really hate it because generally speaking when you hear the word smart in front of a city or a fridge or whatever it is um, it's a way of saying hey we've used this device to steal your personal data Um, like you know it's always a Trojan horse it's just question is is it a Trojan horse for what right Uh, and and like I've always said a neighbourhood built by one person is not a real neighbourhood you know and, and creating these kind of I don't need to talk too much about this, the kind of panopticons of surveillance, et cetera, et cetera, about power. So don't get me wrong, the Internet of Things is, is, is really, really cool because, again, as I said earlier, this ability to understand our environment in terms of how it performs and what it can do to us, for us, et cetera, et cetera, um, is, is really, really cool because, for example, we'll, we'll move in the future, our planning system will be less based on, for example, these dumb proxies of land use and we'll, we'll just talk about things like air pollution. So instead of saying, all the industry must be over there in that part of town, which is a very kind of silly way of doing things, we'll say, no, no, you can do what you want here, but by the way, don't think about making this many parts per million of whatever, right? So, um, yeah, we, we just have to be really, really careful and really, really critical to, to question these things, but then also not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Um, and to ask ourselves, pull away whatever the technology is, because in a few years' time, it'll be another technology that they're selling to you at conferences um, and trying to do this process of intellectual capture by getting the mayor on stage and all that stuff. Um, and, but to pull back the thing and go, what is the kind of city that we want to live in and what are the characteristics of it? You know, and I, sort of at that point, I kind of just open Jane Jacobs and say, yeah, what she said. But but with, but, but with digital stuff. There's a there's a great um, Twitter account called the Internet of Shit. Yeah, brilliant, um, brilliant, which brilliant. is just a collection of um, uh, objects that have had like smart put in front of it, like a like a smart water bottle, or and then and then all the different ways they've gone wrong. Like you know, I, I, I'm I've gone hungry because my fridge crashed, or I'm locked outside because my front door is is updating. You know. Um, <laughs> uh, but in the in the end, I mean, what like the these these smart objects are just the bubbling to the surface of um, a very pervasive um, planetary scaled computational network, um, uh, which is an infrastructure. And like all infrastructures, it, it, the question is, you know, to what end do we purpose it? Um, and uh, I think you know, we can, we can choose to do that to connect people in really interesting and unique ways. We can choose to do that to operate at a scale we've never been able to operate at before, which might mean that we're able to come to certain sorts of collective consensuses about super-scaled issues like um, global climate change or something. Um, but at the moment, we seem to purpose it to, to, to sell people more things, um, uh, or at least we manage it um, through a... Um, a particular set of proprietary algorithms, which means that the access to that network is is not dem- democratic at all, but um, uh, is is held by a few key gatekeepers. Um, and the decisions that that um, through which we use that network, um, you know, the things that the, the decisions that used to govern public space that used to be part of or the domain of a publicly elected government are now um, being outsourced to Cisco Systems um, or to IBM Smart City. Um, and I think these are the real questions that we need to be talking about. And the, the Internet of Things discussion is is really just a proxy for a, a conversation about the politics of this, this, mm-hmm. this planetary network. 
But may, may I quickly mm. uh, jump in and say, uh, in this scope of this debate, we have to beware dystopias. And I, and I say this, you know, with the greatest love of... of, of what, dystopias are really, really important. Uh, and dissent is really important because dissent is the means by which we create conscience, we, we, uh, we activate our own conscience and we can fight back against the absurd paid for, you know, hubristic narratives of round tech that are being, you know, pumped down at great expense. So dissent is really important, but there's, there's, there is also a very dangerous temptation to stop at, to stop at dissent and to stop at dystopias. And, it, and it's, coo it's cooler, right? Dystopias are cooler, right? Yeah. If, uh, if you sell books or, or films or whatever, dystopias are much cooler. But, it, but I think we've seen the risk, right? Because it, it seems cool, that, like you don't have to pin your colours to any mast. But the danger of dystopias, if you actually, it's well recorded, if you look back in the history of NASA, that actually sci-fi authors had done a lot of the thinking for them before they ever came to design the Saturn V rocket. And so they were, they were in a rush, uh, and so they, they just kind of, they'd all grown up reading sci-fi, so they just built that. And the problem with dystopias is we do exactly the same. So if you put dystopias out there, Silicon Valley, who's in a rush, go, oh, cool, we'll just build that. Uh, and I, the, the most interesting example of this I've heard of, and I don't know whether it's true or not, is Charlie Brooker's uh, Black Mirror thing, you know, the, the social media one, which is truly terrifying. And mm -hmm. um, there's some suggestion that it may have been an influence on the um, Sesame Credit project in China, which, if you aren't aware of it, is the most Orwellian thing you'll ever hear of, where basically they're creating a kind of credit rating for patriotism in China. Uh, <laughs> and the government's... That's, I'm not making this up. The Chinese government's going to roll this out in the next year or so. Um, it, it's truly terrifying. And, and there is some rumour that possibly they got the idea from Charlie Brooker. <laughs> uh, and even if they didn't, they could have done. So the thing that we have to do is, is yes, get to the scent, get to the stopia, but then actually take the one step further where we begin to envision and paint uh, pictures, even if they're not perfect straight away, of a better version of how things could be, even if it's a bit less cool. Mm. I, was, I, I was having a, a discussion with some friends of mine the other night about the, this film, Her, the Spike Jones film, Her, where a guy falls in love with his operating system voiced by Scarlett Johansson. And he's a dweeb, and the operating system is very sexy. Uh, and and you know, we, we were talking about the smart house idea. You know, and it may well be that your house is, is Scarlett Johansson, but your house might also be James Franco. Your house might be an asshole. You know, <laughs> and then what? Then what happens to this relationship? And I think that's the. You know, this is you can you can construct a utopia. You know, with a, with a slight darkness around the edge, and the darkness very 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 quickly kind of takes the whole thing over. Okay. Any more um, questions in the audience? Uh, yep, another one on this aisle. Thank you. I'm going to go back a little bit in time. Um, mm -hmm. And first of all, thank you all for your, each of your visions into, into all these interconnections. Um, I'm, I'm curious in a time and place where we have all of these connections and movement of resources and materials, um, collection of data and information across the globe and uh, take into our psyches, um, is there, will there still be some sort of a place for um, the, or a value for local knowledge and local context and a kind of intimate understanding with place um, and a way of building and using materials that are still have some, uh, I'm, I'm talking about not, not the UK, for example, I'm talking about other parts of the world, but do you think there's still um, something in there that we can bring and bridge or merge with emerging technologies in order to propel things at a more kind of, uh, at a pace that where everyone can kind of happily catch up or contribute. 
Yeah. Uh, so it's really it's about global. Is you know is global? Are we doomed to globalization, or is there a, you know is there a more local future? I guess I don't know. Anna, maybe what do you what do you think? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's a tough one. Um, uh, the problem of uh, all what we're talking tonight is about uh, being aware of. So turning things visible, so being aware of the impact of the phone, being aware of uh, our behavior, the impact on of, of our behaviors. And of course, there's this tendency about local, because we know that if, you know, if there's no transport, therefore there's uh, less pollution and et cetera, et cetera. And we, can, we, can, we actually have a clear access of that knowledge through the digital platforms, and we like to control things. We, we are obsessed with controlling how much do we walk, how much, you know, we control and measure all what we do to the point that we think that if we control that, we are going to control the impact on our close reality and uh, international reality at large. Uh, so my question here is, again, I'm, I'm, I think that I'm all the night placing question marks <laughs> and being super critical. <laughs> but here it would be like, Okay, then, anything that is not measurable, and regarding architecture, there's a lot of things that are not measurable. For instance, beauty is difficult to measure, as uh, coming back to why do we have nice architectures uh, around. And uh, so anything that is not measurable, therefore, it's out of the, of the equation, as we were mentioning before. So we're not only talking about parts of the society that are not part of these uh, algorithm uh, formulas, and, uh, but also we are talking about uh, things that are embedded into architecture that are not going to be there. And that, comes, that brings us to talk about lobbies of power. And, uh, and I don't know if I want to get into that, but, uh, but things that are measurable in construction and architecture at the end are deeply related with uh, lobbies, industries, and um, many things like that. Uh, I mean, I think, and this is maybe connecting to a point that Alistair was making earlier, like, I think there's a danger in the, 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 myth of the mythology of the local, right? Like, uh, I don't think our futures are involved around kind of a reaction to globalization, which means we kind of retreat to the hills and raise pigs and chickens and, and live off grid, right? Um, uh, and in many cases, what Kate and I have found in our expeditions along these supply chains is an extraordinary amount of local knowledge um, that underpin um, uh, some of the, uh, I mean, they're connected to economies of cheap labor as well, but um, you know, our, our most recent project is investigating the fast fashion supply chain um, that, that starts in India um, that connects to an extraordinary um, thousand-year-old tradition of making textile and cloth um, and then continues now into the manufacture of H&M goods. Um, and I guess what we've found is not a reaction um, against globalization or, an, or a flattening, but an extraordinary set of um, interconnected locals, right? So it's not, um, you know, it's very difficult to imagine um, a local iPad, you know, you know, independently sourced from within the M1 in London. Um, uh, but one can imagine... Uh, you know, these networks and supply chains that we spend our time um, cataloging, um, connecting up a whole series of um, really vital and interesting locals um, and local conditions. Um, and thinking about it in those terms, I think, might be um, really interesting. And to a, to a large extent, it's what um, uh, is, is trying to work behind the scenes anyway. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. I mean, perhaps if we go a bit further in the future, um, to imagine a world where actually, um, let's talk about metals, all the mineral resources, all the metals have been extracted from the ground and are now in circulation. Um, and it's a, it's a matter of um, pinning down these things that are in flow. I think, going back to maybe a point that Alistair was making earlier, I think then there may be a potential for like a localized sourcing within these pools of circulation that will become the kind of the recycling, the endless recycling and recycling and recycling of metals. I think once, the, once matter and material becomes dislocated from its territory, we enter a different kind of um, world in a lot of ways, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, yes, uh, I mean, in a very literal sense, you know, in our day-to-day -day lives, we're sort of talking about an ambition where production is local, knowledge is open source, um, materials are, are fairly circular, uh, and that we're no longer bound by the economics of one size fits all, because we can use parametric automation. Well, we've, we've lived in a world like that before. It's the pre-industrial vernacular, right? And it's, there's, this is no accident. So our, our textbook right now, I'm sure a lot of you in this room are familiar with it, is a book called The Pattern Language by Christopher Alexander. Now he went out, and this has got a really interesting history to it, because he went out, studied architecture without architects, right? The emergent copied uh, arch architecture of vernacular, which of course has thousands of hours worth of knowledge embedded into it. You don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. It comes with thousands of hours of testing and local iteration. And those vernaculars tend to be, for example, very good at adapting to local climactic conditions or whatever, right? Um, he mapped them, looked at the way they're structured, realized it was like a language, uh, and then effectively wrote, and that's the timeless way of building. And then uh, he structured that, and that book was weirdly hugely influential in the early coding movement because it taught them about language and how they could structure other types of language using things other than words, right? So I, I, I sometimes joke, and when we're building this, this concept, which we call the pattern web, which I discussed earlier, it's like a coding language for things. It's a worldwide web of, of, of design, automated design. And, um, you know, we sometimes joke that all we're really doing, I mean, it's going to be very hard for people to look back at, at the pattern language and believe that it was written before what's about to happen happens. Um, uh, and uh, actually, we are borrowing most heavily from that. So actually, it might be that we look back on, on the Industrial Revolution, these very dumb, centralized, one-size-fits-all models as being very adolescent. Uh, and actually, you know, this is the optimistic version, that actually we can move towards something which is much more rapidly adaptive if we, if we do this right. Um, and I sometimes say, and this is also one of the reasons why we're obsessed with, for a bunch of other things, cutting out speculators and putting power to build homes into the hands of people who are actually going to live there. Again, as Cedric Price give power to the fine tuners. Um, and the reason we're obsessed with that, with doing that, is not just because they build more better, more sustainable homes, et cetera, and more affordable homes, um, but because I, I think the quality of architecture, uh, we usually say it's measured in pounds per square meter, but I actually think in the real world it's measured in hours of attention per square meter, right? which is if it's your home, you've invested loads of hours into it. But equally, open source and vernacular designs, they come with thousands of hours built in. 
Um, so there's something really interesting going on where there's a kind of weird leapfrogging. And, I don't, I, and I'm not going to pin to that because it won't be that clean. What I've just described is a very clean, optimistic version of it. And it's going to be messy because you are both global and local at once. And I, as I can thoroughly agree with that point. You can't get rid of one. It's silly. But nonetheless, there is a possibility in there some really interesting leapfrogging going on. Well, thanks so much. I'm going to have to um, uh, stop it there. But thank you so much to all our panellists. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.